welcome to this week's episode of Phenomena, the podcast where we talk about women who have been overlooked or written out of Irish history. I am your host, Maria Butler. I am currently studying my favourite Irish woman, Marion Keyes. This week, I am joined by my good friend, Morgan Ormond, all the way from Baltimore in the States. Morgan is the writer of the Earthbreak podcast, and she's taken some time out to talk to us. Hey, Morgan. Hey, Maria. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself? Past that introduction, at some point in my life, I married an Irish lad. Spent about six years in Cork. We moved to Baltimore, Maryland. This episode, we're going to talk about an Irish-American. So a woman who came to the States pretty young. Her name is Lizzie Halliday. Lizzie is a black widow, an arsonist, an insurance fraudster, a grand theft horse felon, and a serial killer. And she's one of America's first serial killers. At the very least, one of America's first female serial killers. For this episode, I want to just go through the life of Lizzie Halliday. I don't think we're going to get to her final trial. So just for everybody who's listening, normally we do one part episodes, but Lizzie Halliday has enough in her story that we are dedicating our very first two part episode to her. She deserves it. When I was reading up on her, I was going through like many different emotions between like, wow, what a terrible, disgusting person to wow, she, you know, she was actually like really sick and needed help to, oh my God, what an icon. I'm not familiar with the story of Lizzie Halliday yet, but I've been getting like periodic updates from Morgan as she's been researching her. Um, my favorite one is Am I allowed to swear because it's impossible to think about Lizzie without swearing every so often I have to put down my book and just scream fuck at the ceiling. (laughs) Yeah, this has been a joy to research. So before I get into it, get into it, I want to preface the story with a few things. Since this was over 100 years ago, all we have to go on are what people said about her at the time and how people reported on her and evaluations from doctors and and anecdotes. There's a lot to go on, but at the same time, medical knowledge back then wasn't great. And also, I am also not qualified to give a professional opinion on someone's mental health. Mm -hmm. But I will say that in the past, it was my job to research the behavioral tendencies of serial killers. So I can say that my opinion as of right now is that Lizzie has the behavioral tendencies of modern day serial killers that we can kind of look at the likes of um, Jeffrey Dahmer. Okay. So you could say in some ways that she was ahead of her time just for all the wrong reasons. Definitely. She was very ahead of her time. Classic feminist. No. (laughs) I'm excited. Are you ready to? I'm so excited. Okay. So 1864, Lizzie was born, but she was born by the name of Eliza Margaret McNally in County Antrim, Ireland. And she's going to go through a lot of names. Eliza Margaret McNally is how she starts. The Great Famine ended around 1849. So this is about 10 to 20 years after that. And her family is trying to move to the United States. Her brother and her father go first. And they end up moving to Philadelphia. In Philadelphia, 
the McNallys have family friends called the McQuillans. So the McQuillans have set up a pub in Philadelphia where they own the pub. John McNally, so Lizzie's father, thinks he's going to be a partner in this pub. He gets there and the misunderstanding is that they actually wanted his wife for uh, working at the pub. So he goes over there thinking he he has a job. Turns out he doesn't have a job. He ends up getting a job in the factory, so it takes a while, and eventually he gets enough money to get his family over to the States. It's the rare occasion where, back in the day, they sent over a man, and it was like, no, we wanted your wife instead. (laughs) Yeah. And that kind of miscommunication takes months because you're writing. So the McQuillans will, will come back later. We have a little background where the children of the McNallys and the McQuillans grew up together and they played together often. So at the time, Lizzie was known as Maggie. And when she was eight years old, she finally came over to the States. When she was 14, she had a relationship with the McQuillan's son. So Thomas McQuillan had a son named Nathaniel, who was 17. So 14 and 17-year-old, they were an item. But by the time Lizzie was 15... The family decided to move up north towards New York and up the Hudson. And they just kept moving north and north up until they get to Greenwich, New York. And Lizzie, I think at this time, there are comments from family and acquaintances where Lizzie started showing violent tendencies around this time. So she had... A beautiful bow and was ripped away. I mean, if I was a teenage girl, I'd be pretty annoyed about that too. Yeah. But at the same time, so she, because of her violent tendencies, I, I think she, she dropped out of school. Like it was very hard for her to go to school. So because she wasn't in school, she was encouraged to either seek employment or get a husband at the age of 15. At this point, she she goes into employment first, and we see this kind of pattern of her becoming a domestic help in people's houses, but those jobs uh, never last long at all because she's very difficult to get along with. In one of the trials, it comes out, like a bunch of employers were interviewed. One of her employers, Mrs. G., She said that Lizzie came up to her begging like on her hands and knees that she needed this job. So she hired her as a domestic helper in the house. And it was fine for about three weeks until uh, Mrs. G commented how uh, Lizzie did the baking wrong. And Lizzie threw a fit, just spewing profanities and threatening to get Mrs. G arrested. (laughs) I mean, Lizzie just can't take criticism (laughs) at all. Lizzie almost immediately went out and sought a justice of the peace. So basically she went out and got a lawyer and told the lawyer, I've been assaulted. Oh, wow. Yeah, she was trying to say like Mrs. G gave her like a bloody nose and blah, blah, blah. And we're going to see a pattern of her like threatening legal action and trying to get money out of people. There's a particular lawyer, a justice of the peace named 
James White. So James White was interviewed in regards to Lizzie because she went to him many times and he was pretty fed up with her. He said that he was called on a lot to aid her in the collection of money that she alleged was owed to her by her employers for work that was done but not paid for. Each time she did that, James White would say, no, you're not owed any money. And he stated later that he honestly couldn't tell if she honestly thought she was owed this money or if she was trying to scam. Mm -hmm. This kept continuing for a while. (laughs) James White also said of her personality that she married about everybody that came her way. Oh, that's damning. I feel like I feel like that's the old the old timey version of slut shaming. It is. <laughs> but it's also true. <laughs> we're going to we're going to go through her husband's by number. Uh one of the physicians, this is great. One of the physicians that was sworn into her trial called her quote a moral monstrosity. I'm getting the sense, Morgan, somehow that people didn't like her very much. (laughs) People either saw her as a monster or they were completely infatuated by her. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it was... From the information I had, there was no middle ground. Either people could tell, like, she was dangerous. You know, you get kind of that feeling. Or they just were completely head over heels or they just trusted her by her word. She had an interesting way of manipulating people that like she was very much aware to an extent of her manipulating people. So Lizzie showed up in court a lot of times, many times um, where she was trying to get money from other people. She was able to get away with some of that at the beginning, but eventually the judge is like, no, <laughs> stop it. Sick of your face, get out of here. <laughs> you can't have been owed this much by this many people all the time. There was another woman named Mrs. M. She thought Lizzie was untrustworthy. Lizzie was a servant at this point. Mrs. M was working alongside her. her. She was a wife of a clergyman. And she would say that she would watch Lizzie work on her own knitting where she was supposed to be doing her mistress's knitting. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as the mistress like would walk into the room, Lizzie would like quickly switch and like do her mistress's knitting I feel like we're all Lizzie in that respect. Yes. How many times have you been pissing around on the internet? Being like, oh, la, la, la. Oh, here's an interesting article. And then, oh, shit, my boss is coming into the room. Better open this spreadsheet. Yeah, yeah. You have the tab ready. Yeah. You have your finger on, on the button. I can relate to Lizzie at this point. And when I was reading about her at this point, I'm like, Oh, you know, she's a normal human being, you know, whatever. At the same time, while Lizzie was working here, she frequently threatened Mrs. M's young daughter by urging her to follow her into the family cellar and then pulling out a butcher knife and saying that she'd kill her if she breathed a word. And I I think that's like a good 
encapsulation of Lizzie's childhood, at least up until the age of 15. So by the fall of 1879, we're at husband number one. Mm -hmm. We don't know how Lizzie met her first husband. People speculate that she met him through doing his laundry. Um, because she meets other husbands by doing their laundry. <laughs> know a man's laundry, know the man. Yep, you know, if you can clean their knickers, they'll fall in love with you. Okay, <laughs> so her first husband, I really want a movie about this. His real name was Charles Hopkins, but he had an alias. He went by Keatspool Brown, and the alias was because he deserted the British Army. His exact age is not known, but he was significantly older than her. And I think I think she's still like 15 around this time. That's what I was going to say. I, I feel like as a teenager, most men would be significantly older than you. Yeah. Yeah. He was known for like being shady. Just in general, he's a shady person. He was a carpenter sometimes for like wealthy families. He was doing carpentry for this wealthy farmer where he met a housekeeper named Mrs. Campbell. So Mrs. Campbell was married, met a housekeeper at this farm, but she fell in love with Charles Hopkins and he took advantage of this. There's a little character zigzagging here, but it all comes together. In my notes, I wrote, <laughs> there's going to be some characters zigzagging here because this plot is T-H-I-C-C thick. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so Hopkins convinced Mrs. Campbell to steal money from the wealthy farmer so that they could run away together, off into the sunset. But surprise, surprise, Hopkins gets about $200 out of this deal and leaves Campbell in the dust. He tells her he never intended to run away with her. I feel like that's meaner. You know, when it's like, haha, I'm going to twist the knife as I run away. Yeah. And she was really in love with him because at the same time, Hopkins was also dating Lizzie. So they're not married yet, but they're dating. And Mrs. Campbell relentlessly pursues Hopkins, thinking that like their relationship wasn't actually over. And Lizzie didn't appreciate this attention she was giving Charles Hopkins. What did she do? Well, the love triangle drama didn't actually last long. Because Mrs. Campbell was found dead in her bed with a bottle of poison on the nightstand next to her. It's one way of getting rid of your, your romantic opposition. Yep. I don't know exactly what was in the bottle, but the record of her death stated that she had a fatal overdose. And there was no suicide note. Mm -hmm. But it was ruled a suicide and it wouldn't be linked or suspected to be linked to Lizzie for a long time. Mm -hmm. And whether this was Charles Hopkins doing and Lizzie learned from this or they did, did it together or it was just Lizzie out of jealousy, we don't know either. But back then it was thought that poison was a, a woman's weapon. Mm -hmm. And that's all we have. <laughs> I definitely don't have brute force. So I have long ago accepted that were I to murder somebody, it would be through poison. That's strange that you say that because Lizzie does have brute force. Oh. 
Yeah. We're going to see some instances later of how strong she is. <laughs> like physically strong. And I love her. I don't love her. I don't. I'm excited. I love how strong she is. <laughs> Against the wishes of Lizzie's family, after the poisoning, Lizzie and Charles Hopkins get married. So Lizzie becomes Maggie Hopkins. So she she has a lot of name changes. But I'll, I'll always reference her as Lizzie so we know who we're talking about. But right now she's Maggie Hopkins. They have one kid together. She names him Charlie after Charles. And Hawkins at this time is working at a brush factory. I guess they're putting bristles on brushes or whatever. And at the time, working at a factory wasn't... Safe. Yeah. <laughs> wasn't safe. <laughs> they were married for about almost two years. And then Charles suddenly died in 1881. Was he swept away? <laughs> You can ignore that and continue with the story. By the lungs, maybe. Because his death is still kind of up in the air, like the actual what killed him. Because Lizzie claimed it was typhoid fever. A doctor who had treated Hopkins said that he had a lot of respiratory issues from brush bristles because they're so tiny and you're breathing it in and it gets into the lungs. Okay. But... He died very suddenly, and the doctor said that Hopkins had confessed to him earlier, before his death, I am afraid of her. She has threatened my life. She'll kill me. Maybe he was just covering his bases. (laughs) I mean, sure. Yeah. Or setting her up. (laughs) Setting her up knowing he's going to die. Yeah. Maybe he just didn't like her. He disliked her so much that he said she was probably going to kill him and then he killed himself. Ooh, ultimate revenge. <laughs> Ooh. If this was the only thing to go on, it could be easily dismissed, except Lizzie also stated at some point later, she was never happy afterwards. I heard him say often he was tired of living. He didn't live long. He got his wish. And I got the money that was left. (laughs) I think this is, she said this to her sister, Martha. Lizzie is like one out of 10 kids. Other than Martha, the family that's going to be mentioned are her father, John, and her sister, Mary. Okay. Where we're going to get most of the information. But a lot of her family wanted nothing to do with her for a long time. Fair. So we get a lot of information from Mary, her sister, later, especially when authorities interview her. Lizzie's sister Martha also said that she never saw the first thing wrong up until Lizzie married Charles Hopkins. Which I don't I don't think is true. Cause if she was showing kind of maybe not like violent violent like physically violent but she was she had a bad temper and she would yell at people and Mm -hmm. so so to this day the idea that that lizzie killed her first husband is is still only based on rumor and speculation and it's never been proven but already it's looking like she's what like 17 18 at this stage and we've got a potential body count of two yes 
Okay. Yeah. And this is only what, what we know of. Husband number two. I'm excited. <laughs> At this point in life, Lizzie's still going by Maggie Hopkins. She moves back to Greenwich, New York with her son, Charlie. Oh, yeah. When she married her first husband, I think they were living in Vermont. But she moves back to New York in 1881, where she meets Artemis Brewer. Great name. I know. (laughs) So good. He was a Civil War vet, and he was wounded in battle. So he was suffering from rheumatism and dropsy of the heart, which is an opium addiction. Ah, nice uh, metaphor. I should know what these English things are really. Yeah. But my brain is tired. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I only learned a dropsy of the heart when researching this. So, but I wanted to include it because it's, you know, what they called opium addiction at the time. And it's cool. Well, addiction's not cool. Dropsy of the heart is a phrase is cool. I've always been kind of fascinated by opium addiction, though. I read this book as a kid, a Philip Pullman book called The Tiger in the Well, and they went into loads of opium dens. And like, yeah, it sounded kind of gnarly and not something you should do. But at the same time, also sounded pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, it is something that's just like relaxes you. Everyone's like just gets really, really chill. But it's it's like too chill. There was all those people like Baudelaire. He was always on the stuff. Yeah. All the poets and everything. They were all about the opium. Personally, it's not my cup of tea, but I can see the appeal. But anyway, he got addicted because the United States government prescribed him opium for his chronic pain Mm -hmm. after being wounded in the war. He couldn't walk well. And he had to walk with two canes. There's a sketch of him. Someone did a sketch of him. He looks like a short Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) Artemis Brewer. Complete with hat? No, not complete with hat, unfortunately. And he was described by Lizzie as a bad old man. I don't know how much I believe her here because there's a lot of witness accounts of this a kind of like abusive relationship happening happening the other way around i actually feel quite bad for artemis and it was at this point in my research my my feelings of like oh what an icon lizzie is goes from it goes from that to oh what a terrible disgusting person she is Just when you're saying that, there was one thing that I did kind of want to slightly address, which is I was kind of wary of doing an episode about a serial killer because like the glorification of serial killers. Yeah. But also like there aren't that many female ones. So I really don't know if it's glorifying serial killers raising women out of history by not talking about female ones. So I just decided to go with the latter. In my previous job with research in serial killers there was an issue of fetishizing and a lot of that is how people market serial killers but I think you can have like a good documentary about a serial killer for example the the documentary that came out on like Jeffrey Dahmer I think was adulating him too much because it, it talked about how 
handsome he was and how like women loved him. And there is this psychology, especially among women today, where they they really want to learn about serial killers and how people catch them. And like it's it's the feeling of like outwitting the serial killer in stories they're usually like smart. Mm-hmm. Because I think for women, especially, it's this feeling of taking back power when you otherwise feel very powerless. But there is a problem of adulating serial killers. I don't think I'm doing that here because I think this is more about mental health. Okay. I want to talk about Lizzie's, not just Lizzie's mental health, but how people treated people with poor mental health, you know, they're, they're not getting the support they need or people misunderstood it. And so it just gets worse and worse. It's really interesting. It I don't think it ran through the last season so much as a thread, but this season, mental health and the mistreatment of women who possibly may have had mental health issues mm-hmm. has run through every episode so far this season. Yeah. It's interesting, especially because we're focusing on women that like it's just another part of how like women were mistreated or misunderstood. Although um, I think if Lizzie lived today, she would definitely be getting help because her, her symptoms get pretty severe. She would be getting help. But at the same time, as I said before, she still exhibits behaviors of modern day serial killers. Okay. So Lizzie would play tricks on him. She would hide his medication from him and torment him saying he needed to do the chores first before rewarding him with his medication. She was Kathy Bates in misery. (laughs) And she was also caught like in public abusing him like he was trying to walk with her in town. She would yell at him saying he needed to keep up or walk faster. She would take his cane and like beat him with it. She was also seen beating her son. Up until like a certain point, her son is like always with her. So Artemis Brewer only lasted a year married to Lizzie before he died. The people in town actually were were pretty surprised at how long he lasted Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. Lizzie said that she found him dead one morning while he laid in bed. The doctor who treated him said that it was an obvious opium overdose. He said that Brewer was blue in the face and frothing at the mouth. It's a very handy way to get rid of your husband if they're known to be addicted to something. Oh, yeah. It's... Definitely one of the reasons why she gets away with things so early on. I also think there's a mix of no one wants to really blame the woman or think that a woman's capable of killing. Mm -hmm. And it's also because of a lot of miscommunication or the lack of fast communication, how slow telegraphs are, because she's also changing her name quite a bit (laughs) and moving around. So... Artemis Brewer hadn't been feeling well, and he had a few people come visit his bedside before he died. 
his army buddy from the Civil War, George Smith, came to his bedside the day before he died. So George Smith, important to remember for in the future. Even though Lizzie was never charged or suspected of Artemis Brewer's death, everyone in town totally suspected that she killed her husband. They were like, oh yeah, Lizzie definitely gave him a fatal <laughs> dose of opium. Like, no question. Totally her. But it was just uh, ruled an accident, I guess. So then, husband number three. While cleaning a man's laundry, she met Haram Parkinson. He said he was a widower and had several grown-up daughters. At this point, Lizzie is going by the name of Maggie McNally Hopkins Brewer. Some people collect stamps, she collects names. Yeah, she collects names and marriage certificates. It's amazing. When you were saying as well, he said he was a widower, like immediately what came into my mind was, he had it coming. He had it coming. <laughs> In a way, because it's possible he, he lied. He had a secret where he was actually still married to a woman named Ada Gunn. She was just estranged. Lizzie and Haram got married and the marriage lasted for about five months. They're getting shorter. <laughs> She's, they're less and less putting up with this shit. The tipping point for them was during the Christmas holiday, Haram wanted to go visit his daughters. Lizzie threw a fit and said, no, you're not going to leave. They had a physical fight and Haram left anyway. Not before Haram. So Lizzie stole like $180 out of his pocket. And like when he was trying to pack for the trip, she would like take stuff out of his suitcase as he was putting it in. And she stole money. So Haram went to get a lawyer. And when they got back, she didn't have the money on her. And she said that she also got a lawyer and gave him the money. It was a mess. Just like, oh, you're getting a lawyer? I'm going to get one too. I'm going to sue you so hard. Lizzie loved using the law. Um, so Haram decided to leave her. He told her by the time he gets back from his holiday trip that she should be gone. Not only was she gone when he got back, all of his possessions, anything not nailed down to the ground was gone. I mean, she had to put up with him for five months. <laughs> I know. Uh, I want to say poor guy, but nah, not really. She cleaned the house out and got the fuck out. She, she like, sold everything and bounced. In between Haram, her third husband, and her fourth husband, she lived in a, in a family-owned hotel with her son. So she still has her son with her. The owner made a statement about her later, how she had a bad character and that the devil was in her heart and always was. She was naturally ugly. She's no more insane than you. So one day, Artemis Brewer's old war buddy, George Smith, approaches her about doing his laundry. <laughs> was laundry like the tinder of those <laughs> Throw your shirt right, throw the sock left. And in a few short weeks, he proposed to her. Is this an entrapment thing? 
does he think that she killed her friend? So he's marrying her to prove it? Or is he just into her? I think he's just into her. I don't have enough information to say one way or the other, but there was there was no information about him suspecting her of killing Artemis because like the doctors just ruled it an opium overdose and everyone knew he he had an addiction and she's divorced from husband number 3 no she's not divorced she never divorces anyone she just kills them or leaves them but she's left husband number 3 he's still alive yeah so they they were living in vermont at the time so i think he's still in vermont she just left she sold all his possessions mm-hmm. and left his marriage licenses didn't cross state borders back in those days. <laughs> well, I think she's just changing her name so much that no one can keep up. And the male at the time, you know, can't keep up with Lizzie Halliday. I think these men are, are totally infatuated with her, honestly. George Smith, before marrying her, he, he knew she was married to Artemis, but wasn't aware of any of her life in between Artemis and him. So... He was suspicious that she had remarried after Artemis, and Lizzie was adamant that she hadn't. So George got her to swear in front of, like, a judge and sign a legal document saying that she wasn't married. Lying to the courts? That's nothing to Lizzie. She's been doing it for years. (laughs) Yeah. She, She has the judges wrapped around her finger. They got married in court, and she made sure that she got a copy of the marriage certificate for herself. George Smith does find her marriage certificates later. He like sees her going through a big chest and he recognizes the chest as Artemis Brewer's furniture. And he's just like, what you got there? And it's like pieces of paper. And she's like trying to hide it. Like, oh no, no, no. And he's like, oh no, no, come on. And then she shows him her first marriage certificate. And he's like, oh, right. Father of young Charlie here. Yeah. But why is your chest of marriage certificate so big if I'm only your third husband? <laughs> yeah. And then she showed him the second one, which was, he's like, oh, yes, my friend, Artemis Brewer, you know? And then she's like trying to put them on. He's like, what's, what's that third one wedged between the <laughs> second and fourth one there? At first she tries to hide it, but then she like, gives it to him and she's like smiling and laughing and he's like but you promised me that you know you didn't remarry and she's just like you know you silly you wouldn't have married me if (laughs) the truth like of course (laughs) duh (laughs) lizzie's first real run-in with the law happened around this time where um she assaulted a woman named mary Beringer, who was George Smith's ex-wife. Apparently she had bought George, I love this, this is one of my favorite parts. She had bought George this like really super lush feather bed. And George was obsessed with this bed. He'd talk about it and how much he loved it. And this made Lizzie extremely jealous because it was from his ex-wife. And I guess she had it at the time because Lizzie went over to her house dragged Mary around by the hair, beat her, and then took the feather bed out into the street and ripped it open 
feathers going everywhere. And uh, Lizzie was, well, what they would say naked at the time, but she was like in her night, you know, nightgown or whatever. Okay, I was wondering when you're going what they would say naked. Yeah, like, ooh, inappropriate. I see some ankle. Why did you go into a bad Irish accent when you did that? Oh, I don't know. I was trying to do, um, you know, when people faint and they go, oh, no. Oh, Lordy. I guess that sounds like fake Irish to me. She was arrested and brought into court for that. It was noted that she was carrying her shoes. The justice asked her to put her shoes on. And she said it wasn't her shoes. She was wondering whose shoes they were. And it, it was just kind of the start of her acting strange or saying strange things. And the start of people questioning, like, is she just faking? It seems like she she does have something going on where she's not always lucid. The people in her life don't understand what's going on with her. They think because there are moments of lucidity and calm and reasoning that when she does act strange, that she must be faking it to get out of stuff. So yeah, it, it's quite sad. And Lizzie then, she would disappear for like a few nights every once in a while. George... I think hired someone to to find her and they found that she had been secretly seeing Haram Parkinson again. She and Haram were having a secret love affair as husband and wife. He took her back, I guess. It's all very standards. Oh my god. This needs to be a movie. When Lizzie found out like George knew about her and Haram, she decided to poison his tea. So she set a a cup of tea in front of George Smith and begged him to drink it. He said, no, no, there's there's sugar and milk in it. I I drink mine straight. And she's like, no, 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 drink it. And he he said that, you know, she was acting very anxious. So he he knocked it all back at once. And then he started bending over in extreme pain. He was shouting and the neighbors heard him. They came over. They called the doctor. The doctor performed, I think, kind of like pumping his stomach or, or doing something to, to help him. So George survived this. He was in the clear about a half an hour later, except by that time, Lizzie was gone. Okay, because I was wondering how she managed to get away with this one. Like, this one's very obviously attempted murder. Yes, yeah, because it was like arsenic and tea. I think people were searching for her, when she was on the run, her family wanted nothing to do with her. She started going by a new name. Not completely new, but different name. But yeah, people were looking for her. But she was gone in the night. And that's her fourth husband. So at the moment, only half her husbands are dead. Yes. Two dead. One alive. One poisoned but alive. So now tell me about number five. Number five, his name was Charles Plaistel. She was 22. So this is still 1886. She married Plaistel and then left him after two weeks. So this was very short. No one actually knows what happened to him. This is creepy. He just disappeared. There's no account of him 
in his hometown, not hometown, they were living in Bellow Falls, Vermont. Um, there's no account of him in Bellow Falls after being married to Lizzie. Any information on him is unknown. Just, bloop, gone. And also, he was, the, he was the only husband known to be closer to her age. So he wasn't super old either, which is probably, I mean, if she did anything to him, probably really tragic. You told me off air that she had six husbands. So we're on yes. to the, the, the final one. The final one, the one that gets her caught. So Lizzie's on the run. Lizzie was what they called like tramping it, going from town to town, jumping on trains, using different names. So like she was wanted for questioning, but no one like really knew anything. They couldn't find her. It's rumored she meets like a traveling band of gypsies. At some point, she goes to back to Newburgh, New York to visit her father. But when she gets there, her sister Mary tells her that her father is dead. Some family history comes out where like in the last leg of his life, he also suffered from mental illness. He would walk about the streets and mutter to himself, for example. So people called him insane and called it a day, like there was no help for him. And then he passed away. This is the first of out of only like two recorded moments in Lizzie's life where she showed absolute grief for someone else, where she was so distraught that like Mary took her to the father's grave and Lizzie tried to dig him back up with her hands Mary tried to stop her. Um, She said it was almost impossible. Like Lizzie just had this like unnatural strength. After visiting her father, she keeps traveling down and she goes to Philadelphia where her family first started when they moved over from Ireland. So she's kind of hitting like old places from Mm -hmm. her childhood. This is where she meets Thomas McQuillan's son, John. So Thomas McQuillan is kind of like the patriarch of the family, but he moved up into New York. So the son is running the pub. And the son is the teenage boyfriend. No, that was Nathaniel. I actually have no information about him. (laughs) I don't know what happened to him. But John is another son. He's taken over the pub from his dad and is running it. John hadn't seen some of his sisters in a long time. One of his sisters um, moved to Canada a long time ago. So when Lizzie showed up, kind of knowing the family, John automatically assumed it was his sister and Lizzie went along with it. So she got a room. They obviously weren't very close siblings. I guess not. I mean, but I guess when, when you move as far away as that, you know, if, if you're only getting, like, letters and you're not getting, there's no video. <laughs> you might not know what they look like anymore. But he, he did think it was strange that she didn't write ahead that she was visiting. And after a while, because of Lizzie's behavior sometimes, John and his wife suspected that she wasn't his sister. And they were trying to figure out a way of confronting and evicting her. And yeah, they did evict her. So Lizzie started looking around for other housing 
She's going by the name of Mrs. Margaret Hopkins, a recent widow. I mean, she's not entirely lying. Yeah, she is a widow. So probably hard to find Lizzie McNally Brewer, <laughs> Parkinson Smith. So she she rented a room next to this family home, and it's the their name was the Fitzpatrick's. Lizzie paid for two months up front, and then she bought a bunch of furniture for about $37.50. And then she went straight to an insurance company and took out a policy on our furniture for $600. I'm sure you can see where this is going. Arson? Is it arson? (laughs) Definitely arson. So in 1888, between the days of March 11th and March 14th, there was actually an historic uh, blizzard. So the place was covered in about 55 inches of snow and there were about 400 deaths. So it's a huge blizzard. When the blizzard starting, started to subside on the 14th, the last day, yes, her apartment was on fire. Because everybody knows that snow causes fire. Yeah. Her and her son were nowhere to be found. And also the furniture furniture was missing, except for like some pots and pans. So she ended up taking the furniture out. I guess she was going to try to keep it to sell it, but also claim insurance on it. Mm-hmm. What they did find in the middle of the room were rags doused in coal oil. She, she probably thought she was going to get away with it, but it was obvious that it was arson. So before she meets her final husband, she does lose her son. And this is the the only other time she shows grief. She goes to the hospital with like grease paint on her face saying she was burnt. Um, The hospital staff recognized child abuse and got the child to safety. So hopefully at least little Charlie had kind of a happier ending with that but when um lizzie was brought in for arson she was asking like where her son had gone and she wouldn't stop asking for him they caught her in relation to the arson yes so she did spend time she did have a hearing and a trial um and she spent time at a eastern state penitentiary where al capone would eventually be held actually okay so Lizzie, 25 years old, five foot tall, 117 pounds. People suspect it's, it's around this time Lizzie spent time with other mentally ill patients and might have picked up how to act strange in order to come across as insane. This is when she's in prison for arson, is it? Yeah, because I, I think instead of being released from prison, she does get transferred to the Department for the Insane at Blockley, which was an almshouse. I guess because her behavior in prison, they, they were like, oh, she's insane. She needs to spend time here. And then, oh, you're cured. Go on. Okay. Yeah. Also, there was a peddler named Hutch who ended up being murdered by a man named Levi Rogers, who was known to 
travel with Lizzie. So it is suspected that Lizzie also helped kill this, this peddler with Levi Rogers. So she had an accomplice. And then she meets her sixth husband, her last husband, Paul Halliday. So she met Paul while at a like an employment office. So it's like a general information house. There's like a job board and they tell you like where you can get housing in the town and stuff. So she was there looking at a job board and Paul was there asking if anyone or if they can help him find domestic help on his farm. Lizzie overheard this and immediately was like, oh, I'm a domestic help. Lizzie started to question him, kind of like doing a little interview both ways. And the owner of the establishment or like employment, Mrs. Smith, said later that it sounded like Lizzie was interviewing more for a husband rather than a job. And she even like set Lizzie aside later. And she's like, you don't want Paul Halliday for a husband. He's very, very old. I think he was like 67 at the time. But also anyone who goes to work on the farm has bad luck. Like this one woman almost died on the farm from illness. And instead of trying to like get her a doctor, Paul assumed she was just going to die. So to save a bit of money, (laughs) he went to go dig her grave himself. He dug her grave. They're a perfect match. I know. He dug her grave. But by the time he got back, she was like recovered and she got the fuck out. This dude. Paul Halliday had a bunch of children who were already grown up and moved out, except for one son who was in his late 30s um, named Johnny. And Johnny had uh, a learning disability. People in the town, they would say he was feeble-minded or they'd use the word stupid, which is sad. But like Johnny, he could still like work. Like he he worked on the farm just fine. So Lizzie's going by the name of Maggie Brown at this point. After three months of employment, Paul and Lizzie took an overnight trip to the, uh, another town to get married. Lizzie, I think at this point was had a story where she was a very recent immigrant from Ireland. Whenever Paul Halliday's kids like would come over and like meet her, she told them that she was a recent immigrant from Ireland and that she had killed her husband in Ireland. So she like would admit stuff. Kind of. Is there any reason given as to why she was telling them she killed her husband in Ireland? You know, with um, when we study like modern day serial killers, there's this need to boast. Mm-hmm. What it sounds like to me is that she wants to boast and talk about it, but she knows she'll get in trouble. <laughs> so she tells like half truths where she, she'll wrap things in in this guise of, you know, she was the victim of a certain situation instead of, or a bystander. Mm-hmm. But she can tell you, like, exactly what happened other than that. Like, 
Yeah, so she would say like she she did she killed her husband in Ireland, but it's like, oh, that's in Ireland. What are these guys gonna do? Mm-hmm. You know. Also, be scared of me. I'm your scary stepmom who's like half your age. Yeah, yeah. She she hated the kids. She especially hated Johnny, and Paul's kids hated her. But Paul was infatuated with her. Paul often explained away Lizzie's outbursts as spells or ailments that are particular to women, um, which I think is code for her menstrual cycle. Mm-hmm. And his sons would say like that Lizzie had this like unnatural power they couldn't understand. Like she had this power over their dad. Sex. <laughs> I was going to say, they think she's a witch, but yeah, same thing, I guess. So the last thing I'm going to say about Paul and Lizzie before things go really south, last thing um, I'm going to talk about here is they arrived in Newburgh, New York. Paul started talking about how their house and barn burned down along with Johnny, who was in the house at the time. So Johnny had died. Oh, poor Johnny. Yeah. Paul would tell Mrs. Smith that it was an accident and Johnny actually like saved Lizzie's life and then like died going in for possessions. And then the next morning, Lizzie was gone. She had quite a day where she stole all of Paul Halliday's money. So he was penniless in a different town. She rented a horse and wagon. She found a man to pretend to be her husband. And they hatched a plan where they would take the horse to the next town over and sell it and trade up for better horses. They did this a few times. She was reported missing um, and reportedly like had stolen horses until they found her under a tree. And she looked pretty happy and They asked where this man went that was with her on this horse scheme. And she said that she told him to go fetch some rope so that they could enter the heavens. Okay, so suicide pact. Yeah, suicide pact, except I think she probably would have just killed him. Mm. Oh, well, yes, of course. Yeah, And, and they knew he was with her because she had found him in a pub or some establishment and she was like declaring to everyone that they were going to get married. So yeah. And then they found the dude he had went to find some actual rope and they were like, what are you doing? And he's like, I honestly don't know why I need rope, but Lizzie said we needed rope to get to the heavens. So, you know, (laughs) Oh, God bless him. (laughs) Uh, so Lizzie was caught. She would be caught for the grand theft horse, not for the arson or the killing of Johnny because that was in a different district and they had no power to convict her or like charge her for those crimes in a different county. Okay. Yeah. Paul also couldn't get his money back. It was confiscated as evidence. So Lizzie finally is caught for at least some major crime 
And some things will still come to light. However, at this point, people still think she's a recent immigrant from Ireland and no one knows of her past. So next episode, I'm going to talk to you about the final crimes of Lizzie Halliday and what what gets her caught besides Grand Theft Horsing. And we're going to get into the trial of Lizzie Halliday and how her life concludes in an electrifying manner. Oh, spoilers. (laughs) It's history. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I feel like everyone's on a wild ride with this. So (laughs) thank you so much for that, Morgan. That has been super fascinating. I cannot wait until the next episode to find out what happens next. Thank you, everybody else, for listening. As per usual, if you would like to follow us on social media, it's the Phenomena Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And please rate, like, and share so other people can listen. Or failing that, just please tell all of your friends. Um, talk to you in two weeks' time. Bye. Mm-hmm.